0: I, I, when I say I love cookbooks that are really packed, if you get the one from the New York Times or from Gourmet Magazine or from Sever, they're really anthologies mm-hmm. of recipes that the editors have taken from cooks all over the world. And so there's a lot of
1: different kinds of, of, of stuff on every page. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I have a conversation with Dwight Garner, the author of The Upstairs Delicatessen and the longtime New York Times book critic and editor, and and man, I read at the New York Times. I, I love Dwight's writing. We talk about this unique book, which is a memoir through literature. It's the books he's read that have wonderful references to food and drink and really the convergence of the two. And really, honestly, let's just get to the interview. I love this conversation with Dwight, and I hope you enjoy it. Dwight Garner, this is Taste. How are you? Hey, it's great to be here. It's just cool to meet you. I've I've read you for years and years, and and um, you know, the upstairs delicatessen. Your 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 new memoir. I'll call it that way. We can you can reframe it. Um, I inhaled this book. I read it in two sittings, no dessert, just two sittings. <laughs> maybe a, a a main course and a second main course. Um. Let me ask you just about the title. I think it's a really clever title, and you you, you write there is a is it a Kipling reference? I can't remember.
0: No, it's it's uh, the critic uh, the critic Seymour Crim. It's okay. it's from his work. Got it. Got it. What does it mean? Well, Seymour Krim was this great wildcat critic who operated in the 50s and 60s in America, and I've always loved his work. And he has this great phrase in in one of his books. Um, He describes his memory as, quote, that profuse upstairs delicatessen of mine. And I just love that because, you know, we all have our own upstairs delicatessens. We all have our memories. And what this book is, it's that when I go through a day— eating things I often think of literature I've read in scenes from novels scenes where someone's drinking coffee or having an egg or whatever and I, this book's about my own upstairs delicatessen
1: yeah it's so remarkable in that um, it shows this vast appetite, not just for culinary history and food, but uh, b- but literature and pop culture and film, but mostly literature. And that's really your work at The New York Times is as a book critic and a longtime critic. You're, you're, you're kind of uh, you're tackling all sorts of formats. But I wanted to first ask you about the cookbook. I feel you have a special connection to the cookbook. You have 400 of them. You write about it in a locker somewhere. <laughs> Tell me about that collection. I love that. Well, we have about 200 in our in our home, but we've
0: been we moved around a little bit during the COVID years, so a lot of them are in storage. But you know, I, I'm just addicted to cookbooks, and I'm sure many of your listeners are. I mean, I, I I can't go a month without buying a new one. And I got lucky, you know. I for a long time I was an editor at the New York Times Book Review, and we would do big cookbook roundups, and often there were extras, and there'd be giveaways, so the staff could come and go through the piles. And over the years, I just amassed a great, great collection. And you know, they're kind of how I relax. I, you know, I have to read all day for my job. And when I'm off duty, I, uh, I go to my cookbooks. And it makes my wife a little crazy. She's a cookbook writer herself. And, but I'm always sort of kind of begging her to cook something for me, you know. And I I can't look through one without going, oh my God, we have to have this. And she just rolls her eyes at me sometimes. (laughs) But, you know, I I think Jan Morris, the travel writer, said that a good cookbook is more intellectually serious or adventuresome than even, like, the Kama Sutra, she said, I think. And and I kind of get that. I mean, there's a lot. There's (laughs) a lot about life in every cookbook, you know.
1: Oh my goodness, Wait, I mean, the the, comparing to Kama Sutra, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And All of our listeners know our deep connection to cookbooks on the show and, and my own personal connection. I mean, you talk about the culinary aspects, and your wife is is a very good recipe developer and and, and and writer. But but talk about the more, the other. That what what do you like in a cookbook that's more than the recipes? Because I think you're you're really tapping into something here.
0: Well, I mean, I I, I I love a good head note. I really do. There's an art to writing a good head note, and I, I praise Amanda Hesser in my books. I think hers and those New York Times cookbooks are just really charming. Um, you know, and I, and I like a good head note. I don't – since we're talking about this, I don't like the current trend towards having cookbooks that are maybe 80 percent text and, and they're filled sort of with personal essays. I, I like that, but I think – if you're going to give me personal essays, I'll buy your memoir or I'll buy your book. If I'm buying a book of recipes, I kind of want more recipes, you know. Yeah. And and so the kind of books, the cookbooks I really love, I mean, I have many, many, many cookbooks of all kinds, but I love the ones that are just packed to the gills with recipes so I can flip through
1: and just be inspired on every page. It's like almost like a Pinterest kind of level of just seeing the mood and, and seeing all these different recipes, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And let me ask you about your collection. Um a few titles. We'll get into a few more specific questions about cookbooks later, but I want to what are a few titles that you just wish you had that you know are in that storage locker that might be tucked away and that you might be like, you know, looking for later?
0: Oh, God, that's a good question. You know, I, uh, there's a great main cookbook writer named John Thorne, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah. His book's called, I think, Serious Pig and Outlaw Cook. And I think John Thorne's books, or at least a lot of them, are in that storage locker. We don't grill anymore. We live in the city now. And my favorite grilling books are from Chris Schlesinger, who who owned a great restaurant in Cambridge. Uh, He wrote his books with John Willoughby. And um, there are five or six books they did together. And I revere those books. And um, most of those are in storage. I don't know. I just – whenever I'm looking for something, it seems like the one – goddamn <laughs> book I want is in storage.
1: Is there one that's like literally on your counter that you actually go to that you feel like has the real splatter marks on it?
0: Oh, God. Um, you know, lately, the one I've been working through is the, uh, you know, Sever Magazine has a has a cookbook. I, you know, and I, I, when I say I love cookbooks that are really packed, if you get the one from the New York Times or from Gourmet Magazine or from Sever, they're really anthologies mm-hmm. of recipes that the editors have taken from cooks all over the world. And so there's a lot of different kinds of of, of stuff on every page. And it's not just the editors. It's like a, it's, it's great chefs that they've taken yeah. these from and great restaurants. So I, I've worked, been working my way through this Sever cookbook for a while now. It's really thick and it's great. Um, a book that's really filthy in our house mm-hmm. is the Fergus Henderson book, oh, uh, yeah. the Nose to Tail book. Um, we like cooking that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, it's really filthy. And, you know you know what I do too? I um, For years I've st- – Stuck into my cookbooks, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do this too. Uh, uh, menus from restaurants I've loved, mm-hmm. or, or even even a, a, a supermarket receipt. Maybe we've cooked a big meal and I want to remember it, and so I take the receipt and put it in the back of of a cookbook.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well
0: as invitations and all kinds of things, and I I I, I like to open my cookbooks now these things spill out.
1: I love that. I do the same thing, Dwight. I I usually have like a prep list or a shopping list from that meal, and I tuck it in yes. as well. I do the same thing. It's, I love it. It's a great idea, and I think we all should do that more now. I literally have pages of notes from reading your book, and I think Eater, uh, a really great Bettina uh, wrote a piece about your book and said it should you should have man a highlighter when uh, <laughs> when you're reading it because it's true. I, I wrote notes all the time because as a, as a fan of literature and cooking, you you are kind of rapid fire with these anecdotes, and it's just a wonderful cadence. And it, again, pick this book up; you will read it in two sittings. So I want to like tap into a couple of these like things that stuck out that were in my notes. And the first is you write about your interest in. In the mac and cheese scene once upon a time in Hollywood, that great Quentin Tarantino film from a few years back. Yeah, Talk yeah, about yeah. that. What's well, funny? The, the, there's, everyone probably remembers who's seen the movie. And I've seen it a lot.
0: I think it's a very good movie. Um, there's this mac and cheese scene where Brad Pitt is home with his dog and he's feeding the dog from this horrible can of dog food. And, but the, the line that I quote in my book is actually from the novelization. Quentin Tarantino wrote a mm-hmm. novel um, based on his own movie. And then, you know, he can really write. And, and it's hilarious. And I forget the way the exact quote goes now. Maybe you have it, but it's but something like, you know, uh, Cliff makes the mac and cheese. He doesn't add additional butter or or milk because if he could afford to do that, he'd be eating something better in the first place,
1: which is just a great observation. I, I just. And so that's from the novelization. So to be clear, that's the book that he wrote later on after the film was released. And I've, I've actually had that in my Amazon bucket. I haven't picked it up yeah, yet. It's,
0: it's very it's very shrewd and very charming. Uh Tarantino can write.
1: Yeah, no, great. Um, and and let me ask you a quote, and this is cheese related as well. I, I just I I highlighted this and I wrote this down, and it's an observation. Cheese is the fat man's candy. It stuck with me, and I haven't like stopped thinking about that.
0: Well, my, my best friend Will, who was my my freshman roommate in college, um, uh, whenever we're having cheese, he and I love cheese, so I'm always. Picking at it for an hour before dinner, and he, he's like, "Remember, cheese is the fat man's candy." And I'm like, "Go to hell!" <laughs> and um, but it, it's a great phrase. I, I don't think it's original to him, but it, but it cracks me up. Um, you know, I, I you know, for most of my life, and I write about this in my book. I've been thirty to sixty pounds overweight, and I looking back at my life, it's probably largely the cheese plate yeah. before dinner <laughs> that it
1: does the it. The cheese plate before dinner is always one of those uh, challenges because you just you can't stop.
0: The writer Lori Moore has a great line that might be in my book, but
1: she says, uh, uh, "At a." At a Party no wine. It leads to cheese. Lori <laughs> <laughs> Moore, University of Wisconsin, shouted out. Now, let me ask you, uh, just zooming out a bit. When you're putting together the book, and it chase, it traces your life from childhood to modern times um, through um, food and through references in literature, how are you how are you organizing your thoughts to make this this cohesive? And I say cohesive because it's true narrative um, of your life. Well. You know, um, I had a book come out
0: a couple of years ago called Garner's Quotations, and in it, I write about the fact that since I was a kid, I've kept what's known as a commonplace book, which means that whenever I read something and there's a great line, I write it down. And I've done this for so many years now. I'm fifty-eight. I've done it since I was probably eighteen. Forty years of doing this. It's it's a big book now, and uh, because I love food so much and love food descriptions, and I, I, you know, writing about food is really writing about the entirety of existence. And I, a lot of the quotes in my collection are about food and so before I started writing this book I sort of broke them down into breakfast and lunch and dinner and then mm-hmm. I started noticing that I might have something here I, I might be able to walk through a day um, in my own mind by the way that I eat while also thinking about the things that I've read and I you know I sort of took the quotes that I love the most and tried to use them in this book.
1: Yeah, it's it's really, really special and very unique because you have so much work through your writing over the years to to tap into. Um, And and really, that book of quotations is it's literally you write it down. It's like a notebook.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it started as a notebook when I was in my teens. It's now a two massive files on my on my laptop, Um, you know, uh, which I, I enter stuff into almost every day. If I read a book, you know, not every book that you read, let's say a work of fiction, has a lot of quotable lines in it. And that's not what makes a good work of yeah. fiction. But I will say the kind of novels I love the most are the kind of novels which the writer has a kind of biting sensibility and, and can condense the world into sharp observations. Yeah. And, and so I know a book is good, when I'm underlining a lot and putting things come mm-hmm. up in my comic book.
1: You're right. People who grow up with too much taste
0: miss out. It's, Dwight, it sticks to me. What, what do you mean there? Well, I grew up in a house um, that didn't have any books in it. I mean, we weren't poor. I had tennis lessons and orthodontia. I mean, yeah. You know, we were solidly middle class, even close to upper middle class, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a culturally rich house. And yes. um, and I had to find books on my own and find music on my own and find everything on my own in terms of my own cultural life. And I, I have friends who grew up in New York with really sophisticated parents who were in the arts themselves or were writers. And I feel like because I had to work for my cultural knowledge, it means a little bit more to me than it means to them. Not always, but sometimes.
1: It's really smart. And I think you need to unwind and unpack culture as a as an observer yourself and not be spoon fed. I think if you have culture vulture parents who try to shove, you know, too much down, too much like screen, too many screenings, yeah, you'll miss out. You miss on the discovery. I worry that I did that to my kids. I have two kids both yeah. now in their early 20s. And, and uh,
0: my daughter is in publishing. She, she followed me right along. But my son, I don't think – he's a really – brilliant guy. I don't think he's ever wrote a book in his life just yeah. because he just, you know, like, screw it. I'm not doing what dad did and I, I respect that.
1: What's he up to, your son? Uh,
0: he works in the spirits business. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right on. Oh, yep. So
1: he's like food adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is he is he producing spirits or what is he up to?
0: No, right now he's selling them for, oh, yeah. for, a, for, a, for a good distributor but he has, you know, he has plans um, of, yeah, you know, things to do in the future.
1: Obviously, yeah, you learn learn the trade by working the streets. Exactly, it's a great it's a great job uh, repping spirits. You learn a lot in New York City and, and wherever you And
0: you be. learn. It's funny, you learn the high <laughs> and the low. I mean, yeah, you know, working the streets in New York City is you go into some very exclusive restaurants. At the same time, you see some you see yeah. some stuff going on in some of these uh, 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 smaller liquor stores and yeah. that kind of thing.
1: Back to the the notebook, my own notebook of your work. You write about LBJ's Fresca button. Now, I love Fresca. I, I like to think of Fresca as my top tier, maybe even a probably a Rushmore. A Mount Rushmore uh, soda for me. Now, what do you mean? Did he? Is this real or is this a fiction? Well, it's real.
0: I'm not going to fully believe it until Robert Caro gets around to writing about it. I don't think <laughs> Caro was up that far in his LBJ books. That's so but great. Yeah, I actually double checked it this morning. He, uh, LBJ had a little button under his desk, and when he yeah. pressed it, his aides would bring him a, a Fresca, um, which is cool and are um, you
1: into fresca yourself
0: i love fresca i i actually i, this, I i'm horrible i my wife doesn't drink diet sodas or uh, maybe once in a while diet yeah. coke she's vastly more pure than i she's got a, she's a neo Ellis waters type you know yeah. simple things simply prepared i keep uh diet coke Diet Dr Pepper. Yeah. Sometimes we diet Mountain Dew, Fresca. Whoa, diet Mountain Dew. I'm from West Virginia, so yeah. maybe I should be. Yeah. I should have that. But also, there's a Lana Del Rey song that talks about it, which <laughs> kind of made me think. All right, this is acceptable now. My kids will approve.
1: I, I love diet Mountain Dew. I grew up in West Michigan, and I believe diet Mountain Dew was probably uh, the the second or third most popular beverage in the state. <laughs> um, let me ask you about. Olipop, are you down with like the Better for You sodas? Have you have you tried these? I haven't tried them. Okay. I haven't tried
0: them. I, I never drink. Uh, rarely will drink uh, a, a non diet soda just because I'm an idiot. Someone said somewhere that I think it was Stephen King who said he's never seen a thin person drink a drinking a diet Coke.
1: <laughs> That's really really rough, <laughs> it Stephen. <laughs> wow, it's it's rough, man. That, that guy. Um, yeah, Olipop is this like Better for You soda category or leader in the category? And 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 I think Andrea uh, from Snack Card or Snack Shot uh paraphrase it as metamucil for millennials (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting we'll have one of the founders of olipop on soon i'm sorry for the little digression here um let's talk about francois mitterrand the, the former president of france he had a final meal and you write about it what drew you to this scene
0: well you, know, I, well, you know,
1: I'm 58, I, I,
0: but I, you get—you pass 50, you become more aware of—I'm of, of, really interested now in, in illness memoirs and late-life yeah. memoirs and advice from people who've, who've gone before, and uh, last meals are always interesting mm-hmm. to read about, you know, not just prisoners, but anyone's, and, and Mitra kind of did it the right way. He decided that he was quite old and quite infirm. He decided that he was going to stop eating, and he was just going to end his life, but he decided that before that, he was going to have one last blowout. <laughs> and so he, uh, you know, he had oysters, he had capons, he had uh, most famously orderlons, you know, yeah. little songbirds that you crunch down in one bite. I've never eaten an ortolan. I, I would like to. They're illegal now. You they can't. Are. You can't. But I, I hear stories. I hear tales.
1: So Mitterrand had a round of orderlons in his final meal. That's, yeah, that's the way with, to with go white, you
0: know, the way you do it with a white napkin over your Bang. over your head, sort of to uh, yeah. you know, indicate the shame that, that, that you feel. Um, I, but I, you know, I love hearing stories like this. Uh, one of my favorite writers is uh, Jessica Mitford the the british journalist who wrote the american way of death and she, when she found she had terminal cancer she decided she would eat nothing but chocolate mousse until oh. she died it was and she did according to her
1: i mean that is truly um a god level uh, cuisine right there food i mean mm-hmm. chocolate mousse you cannot go wrong with that one in my book i love that now end of life um, memoirs what draws you to it i just i'm curious you bring that up is it um is it the matter of just the finality of these words um if it is written by somebody who's entering that stage
0: well, one of the things I write about in this book is that I, I'm, a, I'm an enormous reader, I think, for many reasons, but for one reason, um, a phrase I use is observation greed. Um, I'm interested in the philosophy, what life means, but I'm also interested really in in how to live, like how to do it right. And, and I'm interested in people who I think are smarter than me, uh, writers who, who have been there before me and have things to say about every aspect of life, you know. Sex, cars, whatever, games, um, whatever topic there is in the world, and so I love to read a memoir from a from a writer mm-hmm. that I've loved when they're older and talking about the stuff they've learned, and and some of the stuff you've learned, of course, is 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 on a, a deep philosophical level. Other things you've learned is is how you you know love your eggs, um, mm-hmm. and so I, I I like reading books like
1: that. yeah, better living through death. I mean, like just observations about the end makes makes many live a better life. I I, I subscribe to that as well. That's that's interesting. I, I had to follow up with that, it's, it's a good topic. Let's go back to you and home cooking. You write about a daily green salad. Are you still on a daily green salad? Did I read that right? Are you are you in a daily green salad guy?
0: Well, not every day, but there's a salad that I love, and it's very simple to have in the fridge. I, it's funny. One of the things that I, I, I don't like lettuce in my salads. Uh, my wife eats a salad that I think of as, as, as sort of lo- as, as greens, like grass with a bit of oil on it. She's <laughs> very simple. And, I, you know, I like a different kind of salad. I wish someone, there probably is a book, I should find it, uh, that would be called Lettuce-less Salad. Salads. Yeah, because I like my favorite salad is uh, cucumber feta cheese and cherry tomatoes chopped up with some oil and vinegar and salt and pepper. That's all I need. Yeah. It's crunchy. It's it's sweet and sour. It's delicious. And so I eat that all the time.
1: Yeah. Like that's like pure like that's a Mediterranean salad. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. like right from that region. And, and with feta, let's dig into that. Now, are you just going like Trader Joe's brand? Or are you like a feta snob?
0: You know, I wish I could speak more to this, but but Cree is a big shopper. She likes to shop and she's good at it. Yeah. So she brings the feta home and it's always good, but I can't give you a brand. I don't just buy the store brand yeah. at Key Foods across the street. No, she no. goes to Citarella or to yeah. Fairway or something
1: and buys it. But. I ask because if it's it's a key component of this daily salad and you can't be messing around with the choice. Oh, yeah, yeah, but you know what? The secret is, I mean, is that even even
0: bad uh, feta is pretty good I in this agree. Dish, you know. I
1: agree. There's a huge margin of error with available with feta. I right. Mean, right, right. whenever you had bad feta unless it's like blue <laughs> from mold. <laughs> so true. Um okay. You have a fascination with stale cake. In fact, you say cake should not be thrown away. Um, let's talk about this. I think you're onto something here. I think we've written about it on taste, but let me get your takes. Your well, take.
0: I don't want to fetishize it, but a piece of stale cake. I, other people might turn their noses up. It's delicious. I mean, the uh, the frosting is sort of crystallized, got yeah. it crunchy, you know, and a glass of whole milk. And uh, the whole thing is just, it becomes kind of a cookie, you know, in a way yeah. or something. I mean, it can't be stale, six months stale, but, you know, a week, no. it's still delicious.
1: But a week and, you know, you're, you're, you're striking me as a texture guy. <laughs> I feel like texture is important to your palate, yeah. not I mean, just sweetness and richness.
0: Yeah, crunchy, salty, two of the basic food groups. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, and like throwing away cake though—that's like a heartbreaking scene. Like you can't throw away cake. Yeah, well, I I tend
0: to freeze it. I mean, my my wife my wife is is a is a good baker, and she's done it professionally. And you know, I often freeze slices of it and pull them out of the freezer <laughs> when, I'm, when I get home from yeah. a, from you know at two in the morning after having one too many beers yeah. and a piece
1: of cake with uh, milk. Oh man. Speaking of beers, you write about you had beers with Anthony Bourdain and we've talked about Tony a lot on the show and and you don't need to like dive into too much of him but I think you 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 mentioned that you had this 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 evening with him and it, and it struck you and it was worth writing. Let's t- let's go back to that.
0: Well, you know, at the time he wasn't Anthony Bourdain yet. Yeah, he was just this guy who uh, who was cooking, and his mother worked at the New York Times, yeah. where I was then. And I, I was a young editor, very I had just started at the Times, and I worked. I I was the one who assigned these little books in brief, those little page of books in brief. And yeah. someone told me that uh, this guy Tony Bourdain would be great to have write them. And, so, and it was
1: not his mother; it was somebody else. No, somebody else. And he <laughs>
0: and he had written something. You know, he wasn't like an he. You know, he was a writer of some of some sort. I forget what he published at that point, but, you know, and we he wrote for me, and we talked a little bit. We'd had a drink at Jimmy's Corner the boxing yeah. bar mm. on uh 44th I think it is or 43rd uh and you know he was just a guy I mean he was clearly quite handsome and and but he you know he was just Funny and a little shy, and mm-hmm. we had a we had a drink. He turned me on to he liked the poetry of Dennis Johnson, who's in, best known as for his short stories, uh, Jesus's Son. But uh, Johnson's
1: poetry is great. He liked that. Um, but yeah, he just wanted to meet an editor at the New York Times or a writer at the time you were. Yeah, or I probably suggested it. You know, I like to yeah. meet my
0: writers. I like to meet writers too. Me you too. know, so we would go out a lot um, after a beer. It's the best. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's I like I like this story about Tony and and really it it, I feel like it's a good way to remember him. Did you did you read the unauthorized biography? I've
0: read which one is the unauthorized? It came
1: out last fall. I, th- I reviewed one of them, okay. um,
0: and I think that was the one you're talking about.
1: Yeah, the one that got a hold of his computer. And oh, God.
0: Went- oh, God. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You know, the book, it wasn't a great book, um, but uh, – and the guy really intruded, although what's a biographer for, I guess. Um, but, um, yeah, it wasn't particularly well-written or subtle, and yet um, it, to- it tells the story, you know, and, and I-, I was not uninterested because he had a not uninteresting life.
1: Yeah, well said, Dwayne. I, I think that book is uh, complicated, and, and and the narrator and the and the reporting should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, but I, I still sticks with me. It's it, it's an interesting uh, history of Bourdain. I think we'll still c- continue to talk about him for twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years I think so too. Um, let's go into your own sandwich. Um, we'll say, vibe or your your interests, and you you write lovingly about peanut butter and pickles. Tell me about that, Dwayne.
0: This is this is a whole. Whole story because uh, <laughs> you know I grew up eating the I grew up eating peanut butter and pickle sandwiches because my dad always made them and he told me they were the sandwiches when he was young and poor that got him through law school at uh, at uh, West Virginia University and uh, so as I got into my thirties I started really starting to love them and it occurred to me that I should pitch the Times food section on a on a story and they sort of you know. Kind of winced and raised their eyebrows, and they let me do it, you know, whatever, Dwight. And so I wrote a piece, and it became sort of a thing, you know. I mean, on Twitter, people were grossed out, and it made news internet. I mean, like the Daily Mail or, you know, yeah. or the Telegraph, it was everywhere, and people were sort of grossed out. Times, um, kind of stuck it to me because they ran this photograph of the sandwich that made it look really gross.
1: That's the worst. That is like, you can't do that to a writer, I know. Food writer. And so
0: the photograph they run, you know, it's like squishy white bread and no. terrible pickles. It looks like it's from the White Trash Cookbook. And I love the White Trash Cookbook, but I was trying to class this sandwich up, you know? And so I wrote, I wrote about this and it, it still once in a while will come up and people will still uh, email me. And I feel like it's the most famous thing I've ever written.
1: I, uh, I will link to that in the show notes. It's definitely one of the, uh, the most viral stories you've written, at least in for food. And back to the White Trash Cookbook, I, I want to put a pin in that because I feel like that book we've talked about a lot. We published that book here um, years ago at 10 Speed Press. I want to like – what do you remember and recall about this book?
0: Uh, God, you know, I haven't seen a copy, frankly, for a long time. Yeah. I should get a copy because I'm, I'm doing some writing now about um, about West Virginia and growing up and the yeah. kind of food that, that that we ate and people ate. Um, but no, I, I – you know, to be honest with you, I can't.
1: I can't think of a favorite recipe from it. Do you have one? So, do I. I don't have a favorite recipe, but just the history of the writer— you know, as a queer writer back in like the 1980s, it just is a really rich text to explore. And I know folks have written about um, him, but I just, I'm just i glad that you brought it up. I think oh, it should be mentioned.
0: Well, now I'm going to buy a copy today, so thank
1: you. Yeah, you know, it's a cool book. Um, okay, like I'm just going rapid fire here because literally I had three pages of notes um, t- tied to your book. And, and really, um, you were late in life to Oysters. And I think a lot of our listeners may relate to that. Now, let me ask you, what finally hit you with Oysters?
0: you know, I was really late to them. I mean, growing up in the 70s, not many people ate oysters in their families unless you lived on the coasts and it was a thing, you know. But I, I read in my book, I met my wife Cree in college and her father was a well-known chef on the West Coast and he had oysters So he would he would fly in once in a while to visit us in New York City. We'd always go to the oyster bar, you know. Yeah, uh, and, Grand, Grand Central. Central. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, we'd get a couple dozen oysters and some glasses of wine. It was just the thing that we did. And I think the first one I probably pretended to like it. And <laughs> right.
1: by the seventh, you know, I was in. You were in. So just it was like repetition. Now, do you like uh do you like creaminess, brininess What what draws you to a raw oyster? Brian, Brian, Brian. I like salty oysters, uh, yeah big, very cold.
0: Uh like my martinis, uh, mm-hmm. someone said someone said, uh, oh gosh this terrific writer, uh, Lawrence Osborne traveled in countries where drinking alcohol is is illegal and he he describes loving, finding a vodka martini, he describes the taste of it uh, as being like the brine at the bottom of an oyster with a little bit mm-hmm. of olive water and I make, every time I eat an oyster now I think of that line, that line it doesn't yeah. quite taste like a vodka martini but I get it
1: yeah it's definitely a, a good substitute if you're not in the martini <laughs> Um more questions more questions, raw, quicker oats with brown sugar and whole milk you are into this well, uh,
0: you know, everyone has a has a thing of Quaker Oats, right, in the back yeah, of the cabinet. Of so I'm always stumbling in at midnight, wanting something to eat. You know, something sweet. And sometimes the cereal's gone. And and my wife told me one night, you know, you can just take Quaker Oats and dump some into a bowl and put a little sugar or, or whatever and milk on it. It's delicious. And uh, you know, Cree caught me at it once, and and she said to me, yeah, you know, that's what they feed pigs to fatten them up.
1: Yeah, and brown sugar is definitely the number one. I think apple is the number two, but in that variety pack that everyone knows. But raw. Is, it's about texture, Dwight. I'm getting into this texture thing yeah. with you. They
0: don't, have to be, they don't have to be cooked, these oats. They're delicious, just right
1: out of the box. I feel I remember Bill Cunningham, the, the famous uh, New York Times photographer. That was one of his go-tos, I just in that documentary about his life.
0: I kind of wish I didn't know now, though, because I, I sometimes <laughs> don't keep cereal in the house because it has power over me. I'll finish it, you know. Yes. And now that I know that Quaker Oats are sitting there, I'm sort of helpless.
1: You're just like, you know you have to go to the drawer. I might have to ban them okay you are a member of the organ meat society and and any anybody who's familiar with new york food writing knows about this society but fill us in on what that society is and what you have you been meeting do you still meet
0: yeah we had we had a, we had a dinner last week actually um you know it's this group that's been around since the late 90s i've only been a member for the last eight years i always
1: wanted to be one yeah. you know me and, too i mean listen I, I if i can apply i'm please let me apply
0: uh, yeah uh, yeah <laughs> let's talk
1: you're being very polite you're like let's Nine. Talk. you gotta you got got to do something else <laughs> no
0: um and i knew about it i'd read about it uh the guy who kind of is the i, I you know if it were a basketball team uh, the writer and editor, Daniel Okrent, would be the general manager. Yes. And the food critic, Robert Sitsema would be sort of the starting point guard and the coach because he orders for the table, yeah. Sitsema does. And eight, eight or ten of us, there are 15 officially, go out and and we eat organ meats, usually in the outer boroughs. I mean, yeah. cheap stuff, you know, tripe and and it, uh, and intestines and Chinese restaurants and flushing and places like that. Yeah. But once in a while, we really go for it and have a big blowout somewhere. And it's expensive, you know, but just once in a while. Um, but... Yeah, you know, I I wanted to be a member forever and then one night at a dinner party I I didn't know Daniel Okert was going to mm-hmm. be there I knew him just a little bit um but there he was and I I thought here's my chance, yeah. and I walk up to him, and I, I think I impressed him because A, I clearly knew so much about the Organ meat Society, B, I knew so much about eating organs because I love to read about them, and I've I cook from Fergus Henderson's cookbooks all the time, as you mentioned, yeah, and uh, so I think he just I think I forced him, I think you forced, I forced him, him to invite me,
1: and then they couldn't get rid of me. Who else is in the group? Who can you who can you name? Who's 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 out to dinner? Well, with you?
0: I don't want to give too many away, but but the, the journalists uh, Bobby and Bipasha Ghosh, Ghosh, mm-hmm. uh, he, he writes for Bloomberg. Uh, they are. They are members. They're great. The journalist Robert Rob Boynton. Robert Boyton, mm-hmm. is a member. Um, you know, Jeanette Seaver, who's a longtime publisher in New York with her husband, Richard Seaver. People yeah. like that.
1: Love it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, definitely, Daniel. Uh, maybe, he'll, maybe he'll come on the podcast and I can ask him on, on the air. But I feel like you have to be invited. It's not something you apply for. It's very clear.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I You know, it's funny. They keep the numbers kind of limited because, yeah. well, the reason, and I I always sort of want to invite someone. And, and Sitsuma says, well, we can't get too large because then we can't all fit. I mean, it's true. It, It's hard to get into some of these restaurants. Often it's the kind of places that don't even take reservations. So we, we gather early and try to... It's hard to get a table for eight in some places in Flushing. You know, there's not ready for that.
1: Now, let me ask you about uh, your organ meat eating. H- have you come across any that you were shocked that you loved so much?
0: Oh, God. I, you know, I, I like almost everything. I'm really yeah, yeah, pretty omnivorous. One thing, I I, I can't really face a fisheye. I don't know why I'm yep. not into the fisheye situation. Yep. Uh, in the last few years, I finally learned to eat chicken feet and to love them. I mean, it's real poverty food. You, you have to learn how to sort of suck the individual. It's a sucking motion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I will admit for four or five years, I wasn't quite, I didn't get it. But I've finally gotten it, and now I love them. But yeah, fish eyes. Keep the fish eyes away from me. Yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe in five years I'll be there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the cheeks are great. You can definitely get some cavity meat, but the, the eyes are tough for me. Have you had uh, gopchang, the Korean intestines? Uh, we, uh, that's
0: where we went. The Organ Meat Society went there last week, last Wednesday. We went there, oh. uh, that place on the second floor. Gopjeong
1: Story. Yeah, with the grilled intestines. Yeah, gopchang Story in 30 Seconds. a great place.
0: Oh, God. And, and, you know, the crowd is really funky, too. It's all these young young Korean women, you know. It's yeah. like they, they know how to eat. They're all, like, 24 and eating these intestines, I'm like, wow, this is my kind of, now I get K-pop, you know?
1: Um, yeah. Gopchang is, like, truly one of the, the least understood and, and most delicious Korean dishes. I love that dish.
0: Yeah, all kinds of intestines, and, and, and the tongue there is great, and anyway, yeah, first rate.
1: I want to dig a little bit into food and fiction, and you you review books, and you read, you know, all the time, and you're, you're always scouting out... Um, What is a tell or a sign that an author actually knows what they're doing when they're creating a food scene uh, in a restaurant and a home kitchen? Well— uh, you know, it's the little stuff. You know, it's like it's like
0: when, when someone's cooking for you. It's the little stuff. I mean, you notice you notice that they pay attention. You know, they. I mean, uh, you know, a, a good meal is often just because the cook took the time to do things right. And and fiction is much the same way. I you know, the kind of writers I like to read aren't the kind of writers who publish a book every six months. Um, no knock on people who love James Patterson, but you know, James Patterson is is would not be the equivalent of a careful chef. I mean, he's he's you know slamming down a story, and and I I get why people like it, but it's not my thing. And um, if a writer is careful, if a writer says things about food, the consumption of food, about family, about friends, about gathering together. Uh, it's just insight and penetration. Yeah. And I want a writer to tell me, to, first of all, to tell me things I don't know, but also tell me things that I've often thought but never heard expressed so well. That's it's, the best.
1: It's um, articulate, Dwight, because I think what you're not saying, what you're saying is, is not the case, is it's not like a laundry list of, of esoteric ingredients.
0: Oh, God, no. As a matter of fact, you really can't, if, if you want to look ridiculous in fiction, you have characters talk too much about the wine, because inevitably, if you do that, you're setting them up. You're making them look hideous on, on purpose, even if the characters, unless they really care about wine, necessarily, yeah. but too much wine talk in a novel renders your characters kind of, you know, effete snobs in a way. It's, all, it's very hard not to make that sound that way. I mean, some writers... You
1: can- could say it about farmer's markets, too. You could say if you're, like, observing, like, um, produce and, and being douchey about it right, right, as right, well. Right, <laughs> Yeah. It's hard not to be douchey talking about wine. Not that wine <laughs> is douchey. It's not, but it's, it's not yeah, difficult. Um, so it's like an insight into, like, a method or some kind of... And you want to learn something, so it's maybe the way a dish is prepared. Prepared, And the, the, the author is is expressing the end result in a way that you've never been told about something maybe very common.
0: Yeah. In, in Ian McEwan's novel Saturday, which came out in the wake of, of 9-11, um, a character uh, in London prepares a, a, a fish stew that takes all day. And we go with him while he's shopping for it. We go there, we're there when he's sort of playing squash in the afternoon while maybe his stock is simmering. I can't remember the exact scene now. But then his family, and, and you just get his entire day and, and it's centered around this dish which is sort of bubbling in the background. He's thinking about it, while many other things are happening. And that's how we live with food, you know? we're mm-hmm. I'm thinking now about, I'm gonna when I head out of here, I'm gonna pick up this there, mm-hmm. and tonight my wife and I are gonna cook this with it. And, and we all just, as we go about our days, have these little seeds planted that we're thinking about. And these seeds will grow later Dealing to some nice thing that we get to
1: have. I love that. It's well said. I have to ask you how you read. I think you're you're a book critic, and uh, you you write about it in the in the in the book. It's nice to get a sense, but you know you're not reading in the same space, which I thought struck me.
0: Well, I like to move around. Um, if you're reading, all, book critics live like grad students, you know, and if I get too comfortable, I'm taking a nap. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I move around. I go to coffee shops and I sometimes when I'm not in New York, I'll read in my car. I'll go drive to the beach or wherever we are. And sometimes I'll sit outside of a supermarket because it's great people watching. And I'll read my book sitting there with a, the a book on my steering wheel. Um, but in general, the crucial thing is to I, I sit upright at a table usually and not, not a comfortable chair. Um, and I always have a pen. I'm always taking notes.
1: That's how you work. I mean, you have to because you're obviously writing on deadline. You're you're a deadline reporter more than anything. You have a, a lot of deadlines and you have to, you know, work through all these these books.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, if, if you're doing it right, the review is kind of forming in your head while you're reading and, you, yeah. and I'm, you're, I'm writing at the top of the page, like, this would be a great thing to start with and maybe there's a great line I'll write down. This is a perfect ending. And, I, and so you're kind of Preparing it, you're writing the review in your head while you're reading.
1: Let me ask you: I've interviewed a lot of restaurant critics on the show. Uh, Bill Addison from the LA Times, Wells has been on a few times, and I think it's very clear that with restaurant reviews, big part of the job is not reviewing. It's actually picking, going to a restaurant, and not writing about that meal. Um, does it happen with books as well? Are you? It's like the middle. Sometimes if it's not great or if it's not not bad, you can't write about. It. Do you find the the similar um, situation? That's the hardest thing. Most books are in the middle. You know, most books
0: um you know and i don't know as a critic i I don't like mushy reviews i just don't so often i'll find things that i love about the book and things that i don't love and i'll sort of tear it up and build it back down instead of just instead of just being middle pouring lukewarm sauce all over yeah Uh, i look for things that i have strong opinions about which helps um and i you know i i book reviews are not just entertainment But they are entertainment. I think of a high level and I I want to be lively. I don't want to uh, use the old cliches. I don't want to uh – do the the normal thing so if if, if if a book is boring maybe i'll find a way to attack it that isn't boring i'll i'll find i'll talk about the subject matter of the book in a way that i have maybe something to say about i don't know you're always looking for ways not just to 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 be typical
1: i mean that's the big endorsement for picking up every sunday the book review in the times is is that you are not just hearing if it's good or bad you're learning about subject matters that are even some of them are tangential they're like just not related to the book but you just learn it's such a great well-edited section
0: yeah well you know Having an opinion is not such a, a big deal. I mean, your, your uncle <laughs> right. Fester has an opinion. You know, it's it's whether you can uh, talk about it. Um, it's whether you can elucidate why you feel this way. And, and, you know, everyone's got an opinion. So having an opinion is, is the least important thing to a critic. Um, I mean, it matters a little. But it's, it's what you what you're saying.
1: To close this section, Dwight, is there is there a, another food book or cookbook in your future? I know that you just finished this book, but you, you probably are working ahead.
0: I don't know. I would like to because I, I have a lot of things still to say. I, uh, I would like to write a book about organ meats about awful. Yeah um, I think that would be interesting. But right now I'm working on a book, a sort of memoir about growing up in West Virginia. My grandfather was a coal miner and um, about the inner life of that state, you know sort of its history, its literature, its culture, which is sort of undervalued And, and people look and people in America, uh, in the world over, look at mountain people in a way and culture that I'd like to talk about.
1: Are you going back and traveling throughout the state um, for the research of this memoir? I went back for a year, but COVID happened during yeah. that year,
0: so uh-huh. so we were kind of locked down. But I go
1: back; I have relatives there, and I go. Yeah, back. you go back. Is there a food from West Virginia that maybe we don't know?
0: Well, uh, you know, the most famous food from West Virginia is the pepperoni roll. Um, yeah, you know, which you know, yeah. I. I I like. I mean, they're, they're such a fetish. You know, if a restaurant has a special, special tonight, pepperoni rolls. Well, mm-hmm. we already had—anyway, they're everywhere. <laughs> they are everywhere. People love them, and I, I like them. Um, ramps are yeah. a great thing. Um, wow,
1: a, a state with a, a ramp pedigree. Yeah, I like
0: that. My, my grandfather grew up eating them, and he he claimed that that's the way you got out of school. You would eat a bunch of ramps before you went to school, and the teacher would send you home immediately.
1: I love it. Dwayne, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste— so to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire Fast and Furious taste check. Are you ready? Yes. The best breakfast. Oh, eggs simply made. Simply made yeah. in my way over easy uh, scramble. Well, I, 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 I asked him. I
0: didn't. Okay, here's what I do. I take a bit of olive oil in a, in a pan on medium-high heat, medium-low heat, crack two eggs, and then cover it. And so the, the, the uh, yolks get a little bit smoggy. There's not really a name for that, but I have it every morning. It's delicious. And then I get, let my dog lick the plate afterwards, and she loves it too. Oh, man.
1: So you're olive oil, not butter. That, that's a big dividing line i use butter sometimes. Olive oil is a little easier. I'm not judging. I'm just, this is good. This is good <laughs> intel. I like the method. The best dessert. I don't have a sweet tooth.
0: I don't eat dessert very often, but yep. blueberry pie in the summer.
1: Yeah, you made it clear in the book that you don't, and, and really, there's not a huge dessert section, but blueberry is good. The best bread. I could live on
0: Bialy's, um, but in New York, uh, hmm. She-Wolf Bakery in, in Brooklyn, whenever I see them, I just can't. I just run and buy whatever they have.
1: Bialy's, not bagels. Bialy's, yeah. yeah. I, I prefer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? I don't know. They're a little small. They're adorable. They're crispy. I like the onion flavor in the center. Um, they're a little smaller. I, I, actually, sometimes a bagel, it's, it's, it's a little too bready for me unless they're listed a little, I like the thinner ones, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so my allies are thin, they're crunchy. I just like them.
1: I like them. More texture, more, more surface area yeah. for texture. I, I agree. Um, tough question, but I, I think you can answer it. Your favorite cookbook of all time.
0: Oh God. You know, I've, I, I thought about this this morning a little bit about cookbooks and I, I thought the joy of cooking. I mean, I, I if I was going to go to a desert island, I think I would grab that. Those, mm-hmm. those people know what they're doing. And I, I look at mine, you know, I, I sit there. So I, okay lunchtime. I sometimes read the newspaper while I'm having my lunch, but often I'll just grab a cookbook and sit there and flip through it while I'm uh, while I'm having my lunch. And joy of cooking is great to flip through. There's it's all kinds nice. of things you never knew were there that are brilliant.
1: It's 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 and they keep updating it and there's a whole team and a family that is is still doing the work yep. to keep it modern. Um, a favorite recent cookbook discovery?
0: Well, there's a book from the UK called Goat, and it's about cooking with goat meat um, by a guy named uh, James Wettler. And I saw it at a friend's house, and I said, "What is that? I have to have that." So I got a copy. And we live in in Hamilton Heights in Harlem in New York, and the the local supermarkets have a lot of goat meat, and some it's very good. And and we've started to cook with it more and more.
1: Yeah, do you, is there a dish that comes to mind? Well, it,
0: curry is the famous thing you yeah. do with goat. Goat curries are famous. We're trying we're trying to branch out a little bit.
1: That's an amazing protein. That book, I think, was nominated for a James Beard Award. I was at the awards, and I remember it's got this, like, crazy cover. Great right? cover. Amazing cover. It's, it's such a great cover, and it was like, goat. And it was like, shit, i got to buy this book. Great reminder. Um, your favorite New York City restaurant classic edition?
0: I love Balthazar. I think I sometimes ask people at dinner, if you had to eat at one restaurant, uh, every lunch and dinner for the rest of your life, what restaurant would it be? And it's a hard question because you don't want to go somewhere too niche. You don't want to have to, I don't know. um, And I would probably do a brasserie like Balthazar yeah. because you know fish, you have fish, you have meat, you have fries, you have vegetables, you have oysters. It's the whole mm-hmm. fresh seafood. It's it's the it's the it's the gamut, and um, there's always something I want to eat there, and I'd probably go there.
1: Great, great call. I think uh, really well well thought through answer. If you're gonna if you're gonna eat every day, you definitely I would eat i eat the steak au poivre there every day. Uh, you are the guy to probably profile McNally. I feel like you're ah, the guy.
0: Ah, <laughs> I don't know. He scares me, man. He's smart. <laughs> me too. He's funny, you know.
1: <laughs> He's great. I mean, graded with with an asterisk. <laughs> Listener, don't come after me. Uh, great, uh, entertaining figure, and and I hope somebody, maybe Jason Diamond, will will write that profile. I can't
0: wait to read his memoir, which is coming out next year. I I've
1: think. heard it's it's in the works. Yeah, maybe he's waiting to do for that. Um, he's the great get for food writing right now. A Mcnally profile.
0: Yeah, you know it's funny that thing he does on Instagram where he prints his uh, restaurants, his manager's notes from the evening. Yep. Uh, you know, if there was a service in which um, New York City restaurants would do that every night, a lot of restaurants that are interesting restaurants, and I could read about how the night went, I would subscribe to that. I would buy a book. It's just a great idea, and, and I wish more restaurateurs would do something similar.
1: It's a really good call to way. I think that this behind the scenes, and of course with the the bear, and, and we're learning more about back of house, to get a sense of like the rhythms of a restaurant, is, is fascinating. Endless well. Okay, your favorite New York City restaurant, new or new-ish edition?
0: Well, the Organ Meat Society went to Foul Witch um, a couple months ago, yeah. and really well-done food. Some of the best tripe I've ever had in my life. Um, everything in there I liked
1: and I haven't been back yet, but Fowl Witch is a great name and a great place. Great name. I've not made it there, but I've heard great things. Okay, big question. Your favorite food that is has worked into fiction, meaning your favorite, I'll say, ingredient or dish that has found its way into fiction. Your, your book, The Upstairs Delicatessen, is loaded with examples, but is there one that comes to mind?
0: Ah. God, that's a hard one. Uh, can I say alcohol? <laughs> you can, yeah. No, let's do <laughs> I, I, it. I, I always love it when characters around the table or in a bar and they become sort of unbuttoned and the conversation <laughs> gets, gets a little wild and loose. That's always a good moment in a, you know, as, as we all know, most plays uh, or many plays start off at a dinner table, people drinking, and then the, yep. convers- the evening goes on. Yep. You know, it, it's sort of uh, you know Edward Albee-like and things get crazy, and I, that's always great.
1: Your favorite fictional restaurant or restaurant scene? Oh,
0: man. You know, um, an undervalued food novel and a very funny one, a very sarcastic one, is Brett Easton Ellis' American Psycho. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this book was – it really made people mad when it came out. But now it reads like comedy. And his characters, these young, these young yuppie – Financiers, they eat at this restaurant, and they eat the, the meals get increasingly hallucinatory. It, it, at one stage, they're eating eagle carpaccio, you know, stuff like that, like crazy. The meals just get surreal, and I, I forget the other meals they have, but it's 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 a, it's a great send up of eighties food cuisine.
1: It's it's a beautiful scene and scenes, and of course, Dorcia, one of the Dorcia. restaurants featured in the in the in the book, um, is now literally an app. So some general Zer uh, with some capital created a, a restaurant reservation app called Dorsia. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that, that, that restaurant in Dorcia is, is really um, supplanted. And, and I'm so happy you say that. It's such a good call. Great, great example. A couple more. Your favorite vegetable? Creamed spinach. Now, um, questions about that. How do you, is it a ratio? Are we talking more cream than spinach? You know, I've never had cream spinach that I didn't like. First of all, it's so
0: good. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, it's great to get at a steakhouse, but you know, between you and me, um, sometimes when maybe my wife's away and I'm cooking a little steak, I'll I'll go buy the bird's eye. It's delicious. I'll heat it up in a pan. It's very good. Um, You know, to be honest with you, my wife Cree, normally makes it for me when she's cooking, and I'll, I'll request it once in a while. She doesn't like it. She's Alice Waters, she's pure. I, she'll have the spinach, and she'll make a little for me on
1: this. And no shame about bird's, uh, bird's eye or, or any frozen vegetables, Delicious. especially these leafy and peas. It's better. It's better.
0: You're right. And, and come Thanksgiving, my pearl onions will be those because, you know, yeah. I've made them myself for many years now, and I I like those ones that are A broken. pearl onion. Tell me, Dwight,
1: what is this dish?
0: Oh, but you can buy the bird's eye pearled onions with the white sauce. They're creamy. They're delicious. It's
1: literally the onions in sauce from bird's eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Again,
0: there must be a book just about onions. Uh, If there is, I should buy one because I'm an onion
1: fanatic. But pearl onions in sauce from bird's eye, I've not picked that one up. It sounds so good right now. Last one, your favorite sandwich.
0: Turkey club. I mean, uh, you know, I think that if I had to pick one lunch to eat every day the rest of my life, it would probably be a turkey club. It's hard to screw up. Delicious. Um, I have more I have crazier more occult sandwiches that I love to find you know but day in day out
1: you can't beat it you can't beat that Dwight Gardner, this has been such a pleasure thank you for joining This Is Taste thank you This Is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me Matt Rodbar the show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber theme music by Steve Rydell visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.